You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome, boys and girls, to the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, episode 56. I am your host, Pimp Cron, and what are we talking about tonight? In no particular order, we will have a Tesseract mailbox featuring our buddy Andy, who writes in and asks about the Sable Army transports, and he has a particular question for a particular need, and I have a particular answer. We also cover the new expansion for Blackstone Fortress, and it is called uh, something, I don't know, what was it called? Escalation is what it's called. And finally, we have a Real Talk with the Pimpcron where we discuss the, shall I say, banned article from, uh, it was an article that I tried to post and several different websites, Warhammer websites, were not interested in posting it, which is kind of conspiratorial, but whatever. And it is discussing the GW pricing scheme and, you know, what could be behind their pricing because we recently saw price increases and people were all angry. So, to get to the point of tonight, I want to briefly go through what I've been covering. And I've been painting some terrain for Shorehammer, and I've been working on the novel. And also, I played a game against James's brand new Phantom Titan. If you don't know what a Phantom Titan is, it is a giant, giant Eldar Titan. And it is roughly 2,400 points by itself. And it's 60 wounds with a 3-up save. Toughness, 9. So this thing is a monster. And we basically, you know, I thought, man, how could I play this game on hard mode? Like, not only is it hard mode and I've never faced this thing before, but how could I play it on extra hard mode? Because I really wanted to give it my all. And I decided to play my Grey Knights versus it. So how did the Grey Knights do? Well... On turn the end of turn two, I had destroyed it, <laughs> which is pretty surprising. Um, I was teamed up with a friend who had some Primaris, but I actually it was originally just supposed to be me and just James, and I made a you know twenty four hundred point list, and then my friend joined in Dominic. So what ended up happening was I kept like eighteen hundred points, and then Dominic threw in a couple hundred points to make it twenty four hundred. And, uh, so, I mean, he did play a part, but, um, we played the first game and we beat him at the end of turn two. And then we decided to play another game and we beat him at the end of turn two. Now it doesn't mean we didn't take heavy casualties, but I was actually shocked at how well gray knights do because, you know, all their force weapons are, are D3 damage, you know, they've got nice AP. Of course, you know, it's hard to wound a toughness nine creature, but uh, we, I could not believe how quickly that Phantom Titan went down. Now, we did have a lot of models. I don't play Grey Knights the way everyone else plays Grey Knights. I play lots of strike squads and, uh, you know, lots of five-man squads and things like that. Um, not necessarily to, uh, farm out Smite, but I can do it in a pinch. And, um, you know, even Bolters, I mean, the Storm Bolters were kicking butt. I mean, you know, you can, if you're rolling, you know, a hundred Stormbolter shots, let's just say, hundred Stormbolter shots a turn, you're gonna wound it even on sixes, you know, and you get some cyborg ammunition, give you an extra AP, all kinds of things you can do. But come to find out, the Phantom Titan was not as tough as I thought it would be. Admittedly, I took no vehicles except for Rhinos with my Grey Knights. 
So, you know, it was also pretty cool is that Phantom Titan assaulted my uh, um, Grandmaster on a Dread Knight and he had a four up save and this thing did eight wounds on my Warlord and I made uh, six four up invulnerable saves and I rerolled and got another save. So I only took one wound out of all of that, and I was thrilled. What's funny, though, is that out of retaliation at the very end of the game, my warlord in the Dread Knight was the one that took off the last wound of this Phantom Titan at the end of the game, or at the end of turn two. And when the Phantom Titan blew up, it destroyed a huge crater. It blows up 3d6, and you take 2d6 mortal wounds, and 3d6 inches. And it just made a complete clear circle around it on the board. It took out half my army in dying, which was pretty hilarious. But uh, anyway, so I win one on turn two on both of those. And uh, my friend Nate, who has challenged me to an online game of 40k, we played the first uh, turn and a half of our game on roll 20. And uh, we ended up just, you know, pause in it for a little while. We'll get back to it. And eventually we'll give you a battle report of what happened. But he heard that I win frequently and he just had to challenge my Necrons with his guard. So that's what we're in the process of doing. Let's get this show on the road. Thank you for listening and thank you to all my Patreon sponsors. Later. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. It's time for the Tesseract Mailbox. Today we have a message from Andy via pimpcron at gmail.com. He writes, Hey Pimpcron, good show today. He's referring to the Sable Army Transport interview. You had an interesting interview with the owner of Sable Army Transport. While I like their product, they have the same product that most army bags have. The problem is that I have not found a company that makes a bag the dimension of a typical carry-on luggage bag for airlines. Sure, most of them have little ones that can go under the seat, but when you are taking an orc army to Shorehammer, you really can't fit your army in one of those cases. Right now, there are so many big conventions, I'm shocked that no one has made a carry-on sized bag. I would think this would be the best time for cases meant to fit into the overhead compartment. I will just have to keep a lookout for something and keep trying to figure out how best to transport my horde. Talk to you soon, Andy. So... Andy, uh, as a surprise, I actually contacted Sable Army Transport, and I asked them, hey, what is the deal with airline food? No, I said, what is the deal with airline uh, luggage? And he said that, unfortunately, since uh, 9-11, the airlines have changed their dimensions several times in the last, what, 18 years since 9-11, and that, um, to the last of his knowledge, his classic bag for Army Transport, Sable Army Transport, does fit in the overhead compartment, and it is the proper acceptable dimensions. Now, that could change from airline to airline, and that could change from month to month. So, he says there, he used to keep track of that years ago, but they kept changing it, and now he's not entirely sure. Of course, you know, Sable Army Transport offers a backpack variant, and there are, I'm sure, other companies that do that. I'm not certain exactly which ones, but uh, Andy, I gotta tell you, the 
I think the real issue is not the army transport. I really think the real issue is that you're trying to bring a horde army and fitting it into the overhead compartment of an airline. I think that is the real issue because honestly, I don't know of any horde army that would fit in the overhead compartment of an airline. So I don't really know what to tell you. And Sable also says that it is just too much of a headache for them to try to, um, you know, keep track of how often they change the acceptable dimensions of army trans, I mean, not army transport, acceptable dimensions of overhead luggage. I hope I answer your question by not answering at all, actually, because he doesn't know and neither do I. Thanks for writing in, though. That was nice to hear from you, Andy. Want that or want that not? On this edition of Want That or Want That Not, I am taking a look at something that completely flew under my radar. I had no idea about it whatsoever. Is the Blackstone Fortress Escalation. So it's a supplement for Blackstone Fortress, and it is a whopping $110 for 13 models. Good God. $110 for 13 models. So you are nearly paying $10 per model for this. Now, of course, it comes with some boards and some cards and whatever, but, you know, this really rubs me the wrong way because you, this is just an expansion. You still need the regular Blackstone Fortress to even play this. And I guess we'll take a look at some of the miniatures because this is kind of, I think, far too much. The The cost is far too much for this, but... Let's see what comes with it. So first off, you've got this gang of cultists. They look pretty cool. They look a little... Um, uh, they're essentially eight cultists. There's kind of two leaders and a bunch of guys running around. they got horns on their helmets, and they're kind of raider-esque, you know. Um, and uh, the leader has, like, this staff with flame coming out of it. And all these models are, you know, fine. I don't know that I'd pay $10 per model, but they, they look pretty cool you know, and then we also get what appears to be a servitor, and this servitor is pretty cool looking. He has like this, uh, the, actually, I think this is the first new servitor that we've gotten in quite some time. I'm not positive, but I think it is, and he looks pretty awesome. Uh, we also get some sort of tech priest or something that looks Man, that looks so flat and so bland. He looks like he's a single-cast metal model, is what he looks like. Totally unimpressed with him. It's bad when the Tech Marine... Uh, I'm sorry, not the Tech Marine. The Servitor looks cooler than he does. Now, we get in another adventurer or a new explorer for this, and they have, like, the sword for the leg. I'm sure you guys have seen it. All this broke armor and double pistols, and the it's kind of an adorable servitor is loading bullets in the chambers of this pistol. Um, he broke the pistol open in order to uh, reload it and the servitor's reloading it. This model is pretty sweet. I don't know if he or she, it's actually a she, uh, I don't know if she has rules in 40k or not, but having a sword for a leg is pretty awesome. Next, we have a crusader with a sword and a shield. He looks like a regular crusader, one of the Inquisition crusaders. And I find nothing remarkable or interesting about him. He's standing there with his sword and his shield. 
He's not in any sort of action pose, and he looks just pretty much like all the other Crusaders do, with their shields standing on the ground, and eh, I don't see what all the hope law about him is. But next we get to an astropath, and this person looks awesome. Uh, a lot of the astropaths, like for guard and whatnot, um, they they're kind of bland. I don't I don't really care for them. They're old models anyway. This person, I can't tell if it's a man or woman, but it is pretty awesome looking. And I like what they've done with the glove. The palm, for some reason, is exposed on the glove, and each fingertip on the glove is metal. So I guess that's like to arc energy or something like that. They've got a really neat, almost a uh, magus type of um, collar behind their head. You know, magus from Gene Sealer Cult. And they've got all these balls glowing behind their head. It's just a really cool looking model. So, so far we're kind of 50-50 on these models because some of them look really cool and some of them are very meh. Um, and as far as, you know, the, the cultists are just kind of there. Um, now, as far as the good guys, eh, I, the Crusader's okay. The Tech Marine, or the Tech Priest is completely blah. The Psyker, the Sword-Legged Lady, and the Servitor are all pretty cool looking. The Cultists look okay, I guess. But, you know, when when you're paying almost $10 per model, and you are getting a bunch of kind of middling models and a couple cool models, I really don't think it's worth it. And I know Just James likes Blackstone Fortress, but I can't imagine paying $110 for what is essentially four game tiles that are double-sided, uh, five, uh, four new characters, and 13 new enemies, and of course some new missions, but man, I pass on this. This is definitely a want-that-not for me. Um, Blackstone Fortress is a pretty good game, but this just, not for $110, you know, if you said this was $75, I'd be okay with it. You know, $60, definitely. 80 90 okay, you're really pushing it for an expansion. $110, you know what? You can keep your $110 expansion. I'm just not interested. Definitely, I want that not. And to make matters worse, it doesn't even include an adorable dog like they did with that Doberman. So, yeah, I'm expecting every expansion to include an adorable dog or you can not have my money. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. Hey everybody, this is Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and tonight I wanted to discuss an article that was not accepted by several different Warhammer websites, and uh, maybe banned is too strong of a word because it was never accepted in the first place, and it's a topic that nobody seems to want to touch, which is GW's pricing strategy for their models. Now, a little bit of backstory, I've been general manager of a... Uh, I'm always unclear exactly what is small business or medium-sized business, but I'm, I'm assuming small business. I don't know. Uh, general manager of a small business for 14 years now, and I know a thing or two about business. I understand how pricing works. I understand what costs go into employment and production and services and everything like that. So, First of all, let's discuss supply and demand. This is the very first thing because this leads into several things specifically regarding GW. Now, obviously, when supply is high and demand is low, then you're going to get low prices because you've got a flood in the market with your product, right? 
if demand is high and product is low, then you have a shortage and you're going to have huge prices for the small number of things that you have to sell because everybody wants it. Well, you can also fabricate that sort of scenario if you are a monopoly in a certain industry. Well, the only reason why, regardless of how much complaining and whining and moaning, that players, sometimes including myself, love to complain about GW pricing schemes, we are the ones that enable this price to happen. There is literally no way that they as a company could charge the prices they do if not enough of us bought them at that price. So, for instance, you know, the the main objective of any business is to put as little effort or as little money into a product or service in order to get the maximum amount of money. So, in a perfect world, as far as a business owner is concerned, you want to charge infinite amount of money for no effort whatsoever. Just, hey, give me money. That's what your ultimate goal is. But naturally, demand has something to do with that. So nobody's in demand for nothing, right? So that's why that does never, that does never happen because, you know, there has to be a need or a want for that. Maybe not a need, but at least a want. Certainly none of us need our Warhammer models, but there is a want for that. So GW has done a very good job of cornering the market in the 28mm skirmish, or 20, almost, almost turn this into an advertisement for brutality, 28mm miniatures market. And they have done this over, what, 30 years? You know, something like that. And when you are essentially the monopoly on a market, then you can more or less choose your price because you have caused this hunger in your customer base, this demand for your product that I'm going to be ridiculous and say, no matter what price you put on it, they will pay it. And like I originally said, we enable GW to do this. If we, everybody loves to complain about the pricing of GW, but then they continue to pay the price. So that in lies the problem. If you are willing to pay the price every single time they raise the price, then they're going to continue pressing the envelope until you no longer will pay and they see sales drop. Now, I am not saying that we rise up against the man, whatever, but that is the cold hard truth. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there are a million different factors that go into GW's pricing scheme. Number one, they are a corporation. They have shareholders that need a dividend on their investment. So now this might be news to a lot of you guys, but this is probably not news to other you. Everyone thinks they know what stocks are, but let me just explain this really quickly. You break up the ownership of your company and people buy stock into it. Well, they are expecting not necessarily every year, but eventually they are going to either be able to sell the stock for more than what they bought it because your business has grown and the gross um, income, the gross revenue of the company has increased, thus meaning the ownership is more expensive or priced higher, or they're expecting dividends. And dividends are when, oh, we've got X amount of profit, let's issue a dividend, and all of the owners, whether it be hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of owners, shareholders, 
we are going to give them a piece of this pie. Either way, people expect a corporation to always be growing. Now, I am not an economist. I can't entirely speak to all of this. But I do know that you know many corporations are expecting uh, a point one and a half percent growth or two percent growth every single year, and GW has to either okay how do you do that how do you grow a business you either have to sell more product at the current price, or you have to find a cheaper way to do it to make more money, or you have to raise the price, and. Among all of these other factors, you also have wages of your employees, you have benefits of your employees, you have taxes, you have insurances, you have the cost of your product. There are a million things in here. And not to mention, when you're an international company like GW, you then have exchange rates to worry about. So not only as your company is doing good or bad, you are not in a vacuum. You are in an economy with other companies and a national economy. So your national economy may, might be going up or going down at that time, regardless of how your personal company is doing. And depending on the economy of the country that you are in, compared to the economies of other countries, depends on what the exchange rate is. So you might sell something for $10 today, and because of the exchange rate going south, you might sell it for $6 tomorrow once it gets exchanged. And GW always has to deal with this. I know America is a big buyer of, of their product, and the US dollar and the British pound are constantly in fluctuation. So I, dig, I did some digging. I ignored the insurance issues with GW. That's almost impossible to know because that's private information. I ignored all of the taxes because that's really, really iffy, especially dealing with large corporations. They have all kinds of tax shelters, tax loops, all of that sort of thing. So there's no real way for me to know that either. Um, as far as I understand, they do not ex include that sort of thing on their um, quarterly reports for their investors. I briefly looked at the British minimum wage, and apparently that was established around 99, and it has gone up. So I do have that readily available. So the prices that I took for this GW article was between 2002 and 2019. So in the year 2002, the minimum wage was four pounds per hour, and now it is somewhere around eight pounds per hour. So their minimum wage has doubled in the last 17 years. GW, we know from these statistics that I've looked up, they potentially were paying four pounds per hour 17 years ago, and now they pay around eight pounds per hour 17 years later. I'm not saying they pay a minimum wage. I don't know that, but you do know that it has some impact on the other wages that are higher than minimum wage because those people want to be still making more than just minimum wage. Now, I looked into a couple of the things, but let me go ahead and read this lost article from the Pimpcron, which nobody was willing to touch because it is not for or against GW prices. It's just an honest look at GW prices. Okay? When anyone thinks of this hobby, they think of a couple key things. Hobbying, playing, and whining. Our fandom is Fukushima levels of toxicity and ranks up there with comic books, Star Trek, and Star Wars fans. If things stay the same, we whine and cry. 
if GW changes literally anything, we whine and cry. We hold this hobby so dear to our hearts and wallets that when anything changes, we simply can't handle it. The odd and ironic thing is, most everyone continues to buy despite their whining. But am I being unfair? If we meet a jaded gamer from GW's past, you'd have to admit that they have good calls for hurt feelings. Some armies would go a decade before getting a new codex, and FAQs were not a thing until recently. Plus, GW had opened themselves up to their community and got punched right in the face by negativity, so they closed their forums and social media accounts. Ignoring all of the reasons why people whine and cry, price increases are probably the number one reason why there is gnashing of teeth online. Is it a reasonable increase, or is GW being a greedy plastic monger? Well, this is a complex problem to figure out, and not just a cut and dry answer like the internet wants nowadays. Everyone wants a black and white nefarious opponent to rally against, but this just isn't the case. Games Workshop is definitely making a great profit these last couple years, and have been cranking out new and impressive product at an alarming rate. One that actually kind of worries me for the long term, but that's a discussion for another time. We know for a fact that some units and armies are priced at more of a premium than others. I am looking at you, Caradron Overlords. Any corporation has many things to consider when making prices. Obviously, overhead costs such as facilities, staff, etc. are the first concern. But there are also market elements to think about. GW is arguably a monopoly on the miniatures market, so they can set nearly whatever price they want and they will probably get it. And any company needs to maximize profit in any way they can, such as paying higher prices for units with better rules. In other words, paying to win. Character models are also a real premium price, because while a player may need three units of troops, many people only buy one or two HQs. There is no denying that this happens, and that they are constantly pushing the boundaries of what we are willing to accept in prices. New units also tend to be set at a higher price point, as the company knows they have to worry about future economic trends and have to try to compensate ahead of time. So in conclusion to this part of the article, yes, they maximize prices where they can. Their monopolistic status, which we allow and support in this industry, enables them to do that. But there is a completely different side to the story. Many of you may think this is a cop-out statement, but hear me out. Inflation is a huge element in this price equation. I did some digging based solely on USD and GBP and discovered something crazy. I will be using Space Marine Tactical Squad boxes for reference in this example, with prices from 2002 to 2019. In 2002, a tax squad box in the US was $24.99 for 10 guys. Can you guys even imagine that? $25 for 10 dudes in 2009. In 2019, a tax squad box is $45 USD for 10 guys. Now, they are new sculpts, but it is almost double. $25 to $45 in 17 years. But we're talking about nearly two decades, so keep that in mind. That is an 80% increase in the box of Marines. You are almost paying double the price for the same number of models as from 15 years ago. Oh, actually 17 years ago. I'm crazy. But let's take a look at inflation of the dollar from those same time periods. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index, today's prices in 2019 are 42% higher than average prices throughout 2002. In other words, $1 
in 2002 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $1.43 in 2019, a difference of $0.43 cents over 17 years. So out of that 80% price increase, half of that can be attributed to inflation of the dollar. Here's another major factor. Now let's take a look at prices of GW's main material, injection polystyrene. That is the plastic they use in model making. While it is hard to find exact prices for each year of this, it is directly tied to oil market prices, which everyone knows has been a roller coaster ride. One pound of polystyrene cost roughly 90 cents in 2002. One pound of polystyrene cost roughly $1.30 in 2019. That is a 44% increase for their primary material they use in production. But being that the inflation of the dollar impacts the price of the material, that means that their material cost has only gone up 2% in 17 years. Finally, impacted by all of this is the dollar to pound ratio of currency, otherwise known as the exchange rate. These prices jump and drop constantly, and currently the dollar is increasing in strength versus the pound. But remember that GW doesn't change their prices every single month to match trading ratios, so they have to gear it towards what the worst case scenario has been. In 2007, the dollar was at roughly half the value of the pound, meaning you had to spend 2 USD to buy 1 British pound worth of product. In conclusion, Companies do maximize profits whenever and wherever they can. They are greedy bastards. But, and this is a big but, while their product prices have gone up 80% in the U.S., their material costs have gone up 38%. Not to mention anything about wage trends in the U.K., taxation trends, or other overhead costs. Plus, they have kept their prices on a steady pace through thick and thin, while the USD and GBP have jumped and jived all over the place in relation to each other. At times, GW has sold the same product for much less profit, and at other times, they've made a killing. But they have to make money where they can because you never know what the next economic trend will be. It might not be in their favor. I'm looking at you, Forge World, when every U.S. player scrambled to buy your products a couple years ago when the British pound took a hit. They may be just another evil corporation in some people's eyes, but it surely is not all profit. And that is the end of the, what I consider, pretty benign article that several Warhammer websites did not want to touch, much to my dismay. Now, I understand GW is touchy over their prices, I understand that, and I know they get a lot of hate for it. But as I explained in this, if you're purely looking at inflation and the cost of the injection polystyrene, their costs simply simply the material costs have gone up 38% out of that 80% price increase. So nearly half of their price increase has just been the cost of their products and the inflation. Not to mention all the other things. So their minimum wage has doubled in this time and their material has increased and plus, you know, there's all kinds of things like this, like research and development and all of their designing of new things and, and just a million costs. You have no idea. If you don't run a business, you literally have no idea. I am not a corporate apologist. 
I, I, I am not, I don't, I don't really care for corporations if I'm being honest, but that's a whole nother can of worms. I think it's a really bad business decision. The problem is I always like to stay away from politics and this is a highly politicized thing and I'm not trying to support or against anything. I'm honestly trying to do some real reporting here. I'm not apologizing for GW because certainly they are a premium product and they charge a lot of money for little plastic men, but they are also essentially the pioneer of this market, and they're certainly the giant corporation in the room. Like, you can't avoid them. Not to mention, they've got super high-quality products, and really none of us can argue against that. So, hopefully, I don't sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my face, but trying to be fair and balanced, they do make a killing. They, they have huge profit margins. On the other hand, all of their stuff is rising in prices. The cost, the cost of people, the cost of material, the cost of literally everything to run a business. So hopefully you enjoyed this article that was not accepted by several websites because I was told that GW is very touchy about their prices and they don't like people talking about their prices. Well, luckily for me, I have my own venue now in this podcast to give you an idea of exactly how they price their stuff out. And like I said in the article, they have to not just place their prices what they should be right now to cover their costs and make a profit for their shareholders, but they also have to look ahead and price accordingly. They never know when the British pound is suddenly going to take a hit like it did and Forge World was selling stuff at... Uh, I'm going to say half price. You know, they're selling the same thing. Now, they paid the employees the same amount to make those products, and they charge the same amount, but suddenly it's worth half of what it was. You're used to getting $200 USD for a model, and suddenly you're getting $100. Well, that just sucks, huh? I mean, it's... The problem is, I know some of you are probably mad, and some of you will never understand it, because the vast majority of people do not own businesses. The vast majority of people work for businesses, and there's always an us-and-them mentality, and I am not going to sit here and say that there aren't a million bad managers in the world, there aren't a million greedy owners, etc., etc., but there are a lot of costs to business, and GW is a business. At the end of the day, they're not doing this as a charity. They're not doing this as a favor to us. What they want to do, they went into business regardless of what industry they went into, whether it was miniatures or whether it's a hair salon. They're in it to make money. And now that they have investors breathing down their back for the last, what, 15, 20 years, once they went public, they really need to make money. So... Hopefully, you can still uh, look at this with somewhat, you know, neutral eyes and understand that I am not taking up for the corporation and I'm not, you know, condemning it. It just is what it is. They're in because I talked about their costs going up 80%, right? But I mean, their price is going up 80% and their costs going up almost half that. I didn't cover all of their costs, but clearly they're also making a profit. So it goes both ways. And I know that's kind of hard because 
you know, essentially when you're trying to explain something to someone, you usually want to take a stance. You want to go, oh, corporations are bad and this is why. Or corporations are great and this is why. I'm trying to straddle both sides and say, look, this is the situation. Take from it what you will. Hopefully I didn't ramble on too much. Hopefully I made some sense. Thanks for listening.